0: Hi, welcome back to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. We've got another exciting episode for you today. Our lovely guest is the man, J.L. Needham, and honestly, very, very smart chap who really has done the entire cycle of buy, grow, sell, get back in, buy, and and is on a path of acquisitions at the moment. You know, he talks a lot about the different perspectives of being the business owner and going through a transaction. You know, We talked about everything from how he valued a business right through to how the negotiations and discussions and some of those critical elements that were required to get a deal done. But then, of course, how he's managed to use those insights to become a buyer and how he implements those in his own transactions to make sure that there are great win-win outcomes. You know, he drops so many insights into this episode. I, I'm struggling to think of another episode where there are so many solid pieces of advice about how to get deals done. I know you're going to get a lot out of this. There's an entire treasure trove of stuff to take away. This is JL Needham. Hi, JL. Welcome to the Buy Grow Sell podcast. Hi there. Appreciate you making the time to come on the show. My pleasure. Joe, you're one of the, those uh, interesting entrepreneurs that I get a get a chance to speak to. That's that I guess has been involved in what we sort of call the entire buy, grow, sell cycle, um, which I find is fascinating. A lot, lot of our guests on the show, they, they've they uh, been involved in a business and perhaps exited, um, and that tends to be a good a good focus for discussion. But um, yeah, every now and again, we, we come across buyers, as, or, or, or sorry, uh, guests who have often started a company, gone through this big growth cycle, sold, and then got back into the cycle via buying other businesses or doing more startups. So, um i understand that that's been your your journey so yeah looking looking forward to unpacking that a little bit today i also know you know just just as a bit of guidance for for listeners um you know there's a good um focus here around online businesses which you know really i think for for listeners out there if you're not um looking at ways to be online and take your business online then then you're probably missing out but um you know it's gonna be a good theme for our discussion today but Perhaps just for, for the audience, maybe you could kick off and just give us a little bit of your background and kind of what led you to your, uh, well, the first business I think we're going to cover off, which is Valence.
1: Sure, yeah. Um, I've been in what one could call consumer tech, which includes e-commerce, for uh, over 20 years now. And that would explain why I've seen a number of things. I've just been around long enough to see the evolution of the web as uh, distribution, as marketing platform and also interact directly with um, the big tech uh, titans that shape that uh, platform that uh, we all operate on. And, and so I've, I've been part of a early stage uh, tech startup uh, based in Silicon Valley that uh, did well, then not well, had to pivot. And I was part of that process with you know, VC investors behind it and all. That was early in my career. So I was less involved in the, in the M&A side of it. I've uh, built a business or two or three from the ground up I've also uh, merged businesses and seen what that dynamic is about. And then indeed, uh, three years ago, I was involved in selling uh, a business that I helped build uh, from the ground up uh, to a private equity backed company, high stakes transaction, very uh, stressful, complicated. And then more recently, I've been in the acquisitions uh, game, um, specifically the buy then build approach where you buy a, a mature or uh, growing business rather than start from the ground up. So I've seen kind of all dimensions, and I, I, I enjoy working on uh, on them. Uh, but I'm really passionate now about that um, building, uh, about buying then building an existing business. Yeah, that's cool.
0: I, I I find the whole question of buy versus build um, to be really fascinating. You know, we we talk a lot on this show about growth via acquisition and why that's a, a solid alternative to just organic growth, but. Um, you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll perhaps unpack that in a little bit, but I understand you're back, you you, you spent some time working at Google.
1: Yeah. So I worked, like I said, at the outset there uh, for a tech startup that was um, very early in the in the web, um, 99, I think they started, that is 1999. Um, they were taking um, PDF files um, and putting them on the web as kind of proto eBooks. And it was backed by the um, inventor of the PDF file format, John Warnock, who, who founded Adobe systems, one of today's you know, most valuable um, tech companies. And so we were involved in that. And in that context, I got a certain uh, know-how, which is how to persuade a book publisher to trust putting their content on the web. Uh, two, three years later, after i had worked in um, other settings, uh, Google came knocking. Um, and I didn't know what actually wanted me to do. They were unclear at first, but it was in fact to help with their initiative is now you know, many years mature to persuade publishers and libraries to put books on uh, Google services. Um, so yeah, that's how I got involved in that.
0: Yeah, fascinating. It's. Um, I mean, I guess it's as a as a place to also uh, learn and further your knowledge. I guess Google's a great place to uh, to help you um, take that next step. So. Um, Moving on, though, you obviously went into to, uh, Valence. Could, could you give us a little bit of background? What, what was
1: the company? What did they do? Yeah. Um, how, how did you get that started? Yeah, let me connect some some dots there. So, so I went to work for Google to work on their book related initiative, and for uh, just over nine years, I uh, found myself in seemingly every industry segment, um, persuading a content party or content provider to trust Google with putting their content in Google services. So we're talking Google Maps. Various health initiatives. I, I ran content and strategy for Google Finance for some years, um, elections, um, you know, public sector information, and um, in that setting, I got pulled into a project for Google Shopping. Uh, so the e-commerce side of what what Google's uh, in, involved with still today, and. Um, as part of my research, I uh, learned about what was then a, a nascent program uh, that we now in e-commerce know quite well as FBA. So the Fulfill by Amazon program I saw at webinar with the original project man- product manager for the, for the program presented it. And I thought, okay, this is going to change things. And I, my instinct was grounded in the fact that I grew up in a family that does retail. Uh, We've been in the business for generations as a family. And so I could sense how much it would um, simplify, facilitate building an e-commerce business to have all of that warehouse stuff, all that fulfillment and customer service around it taken care of. And so from that point, um, I actually started a side hustle while at Google and ran it for a few years, um, which, as I would say, a best practice with launching your first venture. Don't quit your day job, as I'm sure your listeners have heard. Uh, Stay as long as you can um, before you then have to run on your own income. So anyway, I built that side hustle and that led to another venture and another, you know, I could make a list of about a dozen I've launched within the Amazon ecosystem, but one of them um, that I started uh, with a group of grad students that I uh, indirectly hired um, to help me both choose a business to launch. I gave them three ideas to validate and explore, and uh, we chose one. And then uh, I hired one of them ongoing to, to help us build uh, the business. and. We did and, and this business, is, um, business model wasn't original we were not the first to come up with this but it's basically auditing amazon examining the data that amazon provides on its fulfilled by amazon or fba program to catch errors and then make claims with amazon for the money back and then this business valence would collect a share of that um, money that reimbursement from amazon again we weren't the first to do it, but we came at it in a distinct way. We said, uh, we, we saw that there was a segment of Amazon sellers that were gonna get bigger, faster over time, which are brands versus uh, retailers. And so we centered on that, uh, that group of Amazon sellers. And sure enough, they were kind of the emerging segment there and within three years, gosh, even less than that, two and a half years or so of launching the business, a private equity backed uh, player in uh, an adjacent industry approached us and we knew from the second they arrived and we got their overture through LinkedIn that this was going to be an interesting opportunity and we went through the process of selling them the business uh, again because we chosen a, a kind of a different approach to that business model that was uh, appealing to them yeah that's interesting you mentioned you weren't the first to offer this service
0: so I'm curious when private equity came along and they were talking to you about discussions what was it that they saw about your business versus perhaps
1: others in in your space? Yeah, so the PE firm behind the the actual acquiring company um, has investments in e commerce. They I, I won't name names, but they own several major services in the Shopify and Amazon ecosystems, and so they know their stuff. Like they they understand trends, and they they too understood that. Um, and this is still a kind of a developing trend that brands are. Um, cutting out the middleman, um, setting aside their retail relationships and selling directly on Amazon through Shopify or our other platform to, to sell direct to consumer on a website. And so they saw that we were doing that, that we had hundreds of clients and that they were of that uh, profile. They probably also saw that we were young and our revenue was limited and they could probably buy us for a song. And, and you know, for us, it ended up being a great number and transaction. For them, it was small. You know, It was, it was um, I think, yeah, it was, it was probably the smaller sort of deal that they would do. It, I, I think it's uh,
0: an interesting point for for people listening, um, you know, and thinking they, that they may want to sell one day is that, you know, when you've got a business, I guess, like yours that is built around, around data and can be obviously scaled, you know, before it gets too big. I mean, obviously, PE can bring the capital to scale you, right, if you've got a working model. And so I guess there's yep. somewhere in there is the kind of grey area that makes sense for a, for a good deal. So um yeah can, can you give us an idea of roughly what the business was turning over in
1: terms of top line revenue when when you went through the transaction sure yeah if i can remember it's actually a little hard to, to pull it together in my head here so so we had um some hundreds of clients we were, and we were winning two or three a week at that point and each client was worth about mm, three 000, four thousand dollars a year for us in revenue so you can do the math on that we we're probably um running around a million in service revenue which is quite different than retail revenue um it's more valuable and it was a relatively efficient business we had some manual activity but it was on software driven and so a you know, pretty good gross margin um so yeah that was the scale and but i have to stress like just how small a team had pulled this together and how i wasn't actually that involved this was like a classic um not a classic it was a reversal of the usual scenario usually the, the founder entrepreneur is working in their business um, not on their business i was actually working on the business the entire time meaning i was not part of their operations i was always just helping set strategy with the occasional client um you know going going for capital when it was needed um, and so i'm i'm quite proud of it and but also kind of ashamed because i've built other businesses that i worked deeply in and spent hours on and they've never uh, achieved the kind of enterprise value this this business did and so there's maybe a, a lesson in that about if you're, if you're having to work it too hard, maybe you're not doing the right thing as a founder, entrepreneur. Yeah, it's a great tip. It's, um,
0: it's funny. I, we talk a lot of, to our clients about, you know, thinking about exit planning and stuff like that, not because they necessarily want to get out now, but, hey, what do you want to achieve out of this journey or out of the experience with this particular asset? And, you know, one of the big questions where I was asking is, well, what do you want to be doing with your time? You know, and, and how long do you want to keep doing what you're doing? And I think you know, to what to your point, I mean, yeah, I think we've all seen business owners out there doing sort of 60, 80 hours a week, grinding it out. And if you're not getting the results to sort of compensate you for that, well, yeah, I guess at some point you start to burn out and ask some pretty have to ask some pretty serious questions of yourself.
1: Yeah, I mean, there is there is certainly that. Uh, period of, of launching and building a business where you do have to put in that effort and where you have to keep your head down and accept, um, you know, uh, failure after failure and keep going. Uh, that's for sure. Um, so if I have an observation there that's meaningful, it's that if you've gone kind of a reasonable journey there and it's not yet, uh, you know, showing light, then then there, there is reason to ask the question. So there, there's a balance to strike there. And it's, but anyway, the, the overall point is this was an uncommon experience for me uh, in my career where, Limited effort, high return, um, and it, there's a lesson in that. I think for some of your listeners who, who may have unique skill, limited time, if they can just find the right team, set them in motion, keep them going, stand back, uh, that they might actually get an interesting outcome.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it's a great tip. It, um, yeah, appreciate you sharing that. Um, out of interest, when you did sell, um, and obviously without you know going into anything that might be overly confidential here, but I'm curious how they came up with the valuation. I mean, if you can share the number, great. But if not, what kind of formula did they use? You know, typically we see multiples of EBITDA or top-line revenue or whatever it might be. But I'm just, just
1: curious how they, how they came up with whatever the number was. Yeah, um, we definitely shaped their calculation and uh, did that by providing um, either two or three years of projected top-line and uh, bottom-line. Um, because the the trending bottom line wasn't that interesting from a multiple perspective i mean even if it was like 20x EBITDA, it wouldn't have i think been that interesting for for us we were not we're interested in selling at that level and they knew that so we we centered it right i think yeah we centered it around like a two year one to two year kind of uh, um milestone in the future and what that would look like and then a multiple of, of that uh that said when the offer was coming and it seemed it seemed to take forever for that term sheet to arrive with the actual number. I was, uh, at the moment it arrived, it was, uh, um, you know, a, an important moment. I'll never forget. I was up in the, the, um, smoky mountains in uh, the Eastern United States on vacation with my, my kids when it came in. And I thought it could be anywhere from X to Y, like it was such a wide range and, and it landed about the middle. So I was happy in the end, but, um, yeah, in our case, it was not based on a strict kind of EBITDA times X. It was it was some um, projection of the future times that.
0: Well, and I think that's a really good point for listeners as well, is that, um, you know, buyers aren't buying your past. They're buying your future. And so ha- how can you shape that story? Um, I- I'd like to ask you about deal structure and risk management in a moment. But, you know, I think with your business, there was. There's no question about that trend increasing in terms of more users on Amazon, more sellers, more buyers, more transactions. Therefore, most likely more errors and and a growing market for your business. So, you know that that growth story I, I certainly see in any of the transactions we've run. That growth story is critical for buyers because they don't want to keep doing what you're doing. They want they want to grow and and get a big return on their investment. Um, so, so I can certainly see why that would have played out and, and been important in your your case um, I'm, I'm curious though but with the with a number or evaluation that's based on kind of these future projections did you guys have some kind of component of earnout or something like that to
1: help the buyers mitigate some of their risk oh yeah um, more than half of the consideration was tied to an earnout and that that was part of a a further chapter in the story. Um, um, one thing I'm, I'm reflecting on, remembering about the whole um, transaction, that's notable, is how how there were several factors that were definitely not tied to the EBITDA, definitely not tied to the bottom line, or even the growth potential that that attracted them to us. Um, one was simply being connected to the Amazon ecosystem. This is a this acquiring party had a sizable business that that was involved with two other platforms or kind of major players in in logistics. And for them to add Amazon to their uh, set of services, just to have that brand name, this was in uh, 2019 when Amazon was very ascendant as they are today and as they certainly were during the pandemic. But at that time, it just was quite sexy to be attached to Amazon in the logistics space. And so they were buying access. And I I point that out because your listeners you know, there's a, a concept in uh, Peter Thiel's Zero to One, a great book on entrepreneurship, um, of unfair advantages. Every entrepreneur, every business has certain unfair advantages over competition. They have certain unique connections, traits, whatever. We had that. And we recognized their interest there. When I, and when I figured that out, we played it. Like we would remind them all the time about that growth rate of Amazon's ecosystem, 20% a year in the marketplace has been the trend for, for 15 years. And um, so anyway, we had... Trait, and um, this is going to sound um, a bit self-involved, but I think that the CEO really liked me. Like he wanted me in his circle. He liked the way I talked. He liked my background in, in um, consumer tech with Google, Adobe, um, Amazon, and and so I did my best, uh, and was I was kind of nudged by my my partner Meredith. Uh, she could tell um, that that was the fact. Like she actually met him too. We we had a visit to their offices. And so I kind of made a point of just being his friend, and like being very, very kind of intra- um, engaged with him. And so there again, I would, I would urge um, others looking to do a deal to like look for those soft uh, edges in the transaction and work them because they can, if not push up the valuation, they can solidify the probability of a close. Because it did get dicey for, for our deal, as for any deal. Like there, there were points when, when things got, um, uncertain. Uh, We we missed our numbers at one point as we were moving through diligence and that caused a lot of concern. And so those uh, other connections, I think, held the deal together.
0: But uh, that's a great insight. I mean, it just goes to show that there's no silver bullet with anything, right? And there's no one thing that's uh, that's going to, I guess, necessarily decide the outcome. So yeah, really, really interesting. I I think... You know, time and time again, I see in deals that, that transactions actually only happen when willing buyer and willing seller come together and ab- are able to form a lot of trust and a good relationship in a very short period of time. Um, and it sound, yeah. sounds like you really obviously had that mix because um, there's nothing worse than in a deal and having your numbers have a little dip or a little, you know, it, just, it throws everybody into chaos, causes a bit of panic. Um, you know, and I guess then, then your job as a seller is to convince them that this is not a long term issue; it's a short term blip, and it's yeah, you got all those sort of conversations which can be quite challenging to have. So, um, and, and and speaking of due diligence, and and you know, I guess the process in general, um, can you talk to me a little bit about what that process looked like? Um, you know, did the buyer find you? Did you find them? What did the exit discussion? sound like with yourself and the people you were working with and and then i'd like to touch a little bit on how long the process took and what that looked like
1: yeah so uh i mentioned earlier that um, we knew instantly when we got the overture it came through a linkedin message uh, from someone at the pe firm behind the the acquiring party that this was uh, a high potential um, connection and we knew that because we'd actually already uh, researched who might buy our business and they were. atop the list they were actually the number one candidate in their particular segment uh, we just liked a lot of the, know, the energy we saw looking at uh, their business and i'd actually spoken to a couple of their people at like trade shows just to get uh, aware of how they think um so, that, that, so anyway, that's really that's cool how can i, can I jump in was. and ask you-
0: yeah. yeah oh sorry to speak over you i just i was hoping to jump in and ask a quick question on that because you you mentioned that you'd already had a discussion around potential acquirers so w- was that can I ask, who were the key people in your business? Was it, was it a small enough business that you were talking to everybody about this? Was it just one other close partner? You know, I'm kind of curious about the mindset of a business owner, you know, going from yeah. kind of growth
1: mode to talking exit. So I'll, I'll um, preface by saying it can be very hazardous, I think, for a business to be too obsessed with exiting like for the word exit to be spoken more than a few times a week. Well, we'll just stipulate that. <laughs> um, so I've seen that actually be a hazard in other businesses uh, because you're, you're, you're anticipating your, your, your beautiful future before you've actually earned it. If you do it too much. Uh, anyway, the, um, the GM of the business, one of those grad students that um, I involved in first validating uh, which business model to pursue, uh, he and I were um engaged in that discussion uh, from day one, and we stayed in it. And that's partly because um, the program where I got the access to these grad students was an entrepreneurship program at a university, and uh, where they're effectively trained, you know, to build startups, um, and eventually exit them. So it's just part of the cycle, the business cycle mentality that that this um, colleague Jason uh, came with. And so, so we were um, thinking about it and uh, interviewing uh, directly or indirectly would be buyers um, throughout our two and a half year build of the business. And so when that overture came in, we we were not only able to recognize it as high potential, but also we moved like we 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 got in position as fast as we could for the transaction, which takes us into the kind of the diligence process question. So that ran for, I don't know, a month and uh, it was thorough. <laughs> they were, they were, it was It was very probing. Uh, the CFO of the acquiring company had a background in M and A, and he knew his his game. Um, and the CEO had come from a very large business that had done many acquisitions um, in the financial services sector. So just you know, uh, rigorous questions left and right. Um, the hardest part of the diligence process, I think, though, was the redlining of the legal agreements. Um, that's just you know part of the overall process for any deal. Uh, but uh, there was a struggle with. Their responsiveness and it, it kind of wore us down, and and our our legal counsel was quite expensive, and so we were anxious about you know going through the whole process, having a five figure um, legal bill, um, and then not having a deal. Like if the deal didn't happen, it was going to be very painful to us to have to swallow that. Um, and and so I point out uh, to uh, your listeners who are envisioning a sale and who are running already, you know. Um, Barely, uh, you know, on 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 fumes as a business, you need to make sure you've got um, a bit of a of a budget to do an MA event because if it doesn't happen, it's going to be a expensive um, uh, detour. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's a it's a, a very important point. Um, we've had a number of clients in the in the SaaS space um, and and tech and even ecom and. I'm curious on your perspective. You said DD went for about a month, which, by a lot of accounts, is actually pretty quick. Um, yeah. What was the what was the technical DD like? What was that experience like? And and one of the big questions we always get is from clients is they're concerned about technical DD because they're saying, well, if we open up and show them everything, aren't we at risk of giving away our kind of 11 herbs and spices, you know, how do you manage the need to open up and do due diligence
1: to get the deal done with confidentiality? Yeah, that's a fair question. And I'm actually remembering now that there was the business diligence around the numbers, projections, and the kind of details of how the um, client service was delivered. And then there was the diligence around the tech and Our tech had been built by uh, a brother of mine, um, also on a very part time basis. Um, He's quite capable, but anyway, it it made it so there was a little tenuousness around. And then we had a couple of uh, engineers on staff. We had three at that point. Um, There, too, I think there was a personality uh, driven approach. We had my brother and the engineers visit. We had, I think, a couple of different meetings, one in, in Salt Lake City, where the business was based, and the other in. Kansas City, um, middle of the U.S. where the acquiring party is based. And I, I, again, I think it was just like having people interact. Lots of questions that were answered in writing, but it was mostly just like people talking. I remember seeing um, their tech leads and ours come out of a meeting and they're all just sort of you know chummy and shaking hands and, and comfortable with each other's um, personality, I guess. Like that, that seemed to make a, a bigger difference than the, the hard facts about the tech. Um, So, yeah, that's the insight I have. I was actually a little less involved in the particulars of it, um, but we were, I I know this, there were a lot of questions around um, risk for the acquiring party of any code being, um, you know, um, an infringement on another party's code and that we had to do some um, scrutiny around that. Um, So anyway. Yeah, cool, cool. It's, it's
0: interesting. It's it's such a fine line to walk. And I hear your point that some some of this does come down to the relationships and an and element of trust. Um, we've seen some other mechanisms um, that we've helped put in place too that, you know, can, there's different ways to do the DD uh, reviews. Um, you know, sometimes it's been an agreed third party come in. Sometimes we have quarantined part of the code that can only be released on signing a deal and stuff like that. So I think a lot of DD2 is for people just kind of at least getting enough of a check of the tech that they know that it's not built on something that's completely outdated or something that they they know they need to rebuild from day one. So, you know, I think as people take each progressive step through the process, those parties, those relationships you've talked about, people get more confidence too, right, and they're, they're more able to sort of... Um, get their head around what the risk actually looks like or or how they might be able to minimize it. so yeah um, but it is interesting and I think I think from from a listener's perspective, if you've got tech in your business, there's no one formula or one approach to how you would d- handle a due diligence in this it's you know every business is different every every scenario is different every buyer is different. and so like everything it's about negotiation and discussions and Trying to work out the right approach for everybody involved; um, otherwise, deals just die anyway. So, um,
1: so yeah. Yeah, here, here's one thing I'll, I'll add to that, to that to that discussion. That's probably the more useful perspective I offer. I would offer, and that is, um, ideas like ideas for a business to build, a product to develop. They're easy. Um, any idea you can get uh, or generate, someone else already had, and maybe fifteen people have had. Um, it's and I'm I'm espousing your um, conventional wisdom, it's execution that makes a difference. It's whether you can actually make something happen, get from zero to one. I think the same applies to software. Unless you're delivering something that is absolutely distinctive, um, it's not how the code um, is written and what's in the code. It's the fact that a code works. And a competitor can't just look at your code and then replicate it working. They can replicate some of the logic of it, but um, I, I would worry less in that setting unless I had a, you know, absolutely distinctive business, but then I'd have patents on it. So, so I think that um, fear of exposure to an acquirer um, unless they're, you know, visibly craven and just trying to take advantage. I, th- I think you should just like trust fall and you know, let them see it all and know that if you've got it working, you're already way ahead of anyone trying to copy you because you've got it working. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That makes sense. Makes sense. Um, so just to, um, I guess, wrap up Valence. I mean, from the time you got that first LinkedIn message, you said there was something about a a month in due diligence, but obviously there's, there's always discussions, negotiations, contracts being written, um, just roughly from memory. I mean, what, what would have been the period of time from when you first got the LinkedIn message to when the deal had closed?
1: Yeah, about three months. It was June that we were, um, contacted and it was September that we closed. And, um, there was relatively yeah. uh, active, intense communication the entire time. There wasn't really any lulls um, um, of note. Um, there were some days when we were waiting anxiously for response and worrying maybe they had changed their minds, and that, that, wore, <laughs> that wore me down. But that's just because I was um, uh, kind of a first-timer at that scale of a deal. I'd done other deals, but not, not at this scale for me. Um, yeah. yeah, so about three months. No,
0: that's cool. That's interesting. And I, I also... I've, I, th- I think it's another good point that you've just made. That three three months in in my world or my perspective is mm. is relatively quick. Um, you know, I've, I think tech ha- enables that a little bit more in tech businesses. But um, but that's a relatively quick period of time. And still, there were some frustrations, perhaps emotional ups and downs. You know, that you've referred to there. So, you know, I think I think for business owners listening to this, it's you know, you, you've got to be able to Stay calm through this, manage yourself, you know, no answer for a few days or a bit of silence doesn't mean no interest. There's all these little things, I think, that set us off. You know, the human being behind the business can get uh, can, can sort of get thrown off by different different things. And so, you know, a little bit of patience and managing yourself through that process is going to be one of the most important things. And And, of course, if you are very operational in your business... Keep, keep focused on your company, right? Keep focused on getting the numbers in the door and keeping the performance in the direction it's meant to go. And, you know, hopefully you've got good people around you helping manage the deal. So it's taking the, the, the workload of that off your plate.
1: Yeah, in fact, um, I'll, I'll point out um, that to do a, a deal of a, of a certain scale, you obviously need a law firm um, and uh, maybe you know, an accounting firm. You absolutely have to have your tax strategy around that. Um, but what you also need—it's an—it's an odd um, phrasing—but you, you need a deal doula. So a doula is—I'm um, not sure if in Australia you're from, you you uh, have this term to describe. Uh, typically, it's a female who advises a woman who's about to give birth, um, or advises who's like helps kind of shape the experience um, and takes helps take the rough edges off um, and advocates with the physicians um, and all the rest um, and. I, I had that in my my, my partner Meredith I, I mentioned earlier um, and that was largely because she's a professor of um, well she teaches negotiation at a, you know, at a university level has for years and so she understands the kind of the inner game of the deal and she counseled me you know through those difficult moments and kept me uh, more self-aware and, and like you know higher emotional intelligence than I would have had otherwise and so, um, those listening, you know, who who are considering a deal, be sure that you have not, not a, only a great lawyer and a great account, but a great um, advisor um, kind of confidant um, who understands you and your soul and can help you work through it because the deal will push you to this, to an edge for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Look, great advice. Great
0: advice. Um, JL, let's, let, perhaps we can shift gear here because you, you've, you've done a successful transaction. Um, you know, I think for a lot of people it's, you know put aside the financial side of it usually going through a deal like that is life-changing because it's it's it changes their perspective on so many things but you've taken that experience of being on one side of the fence and and then basically now you've become also a a buyer of businesses um really curious about how that what sort of a mindset shift has taken place how has your previous
1: experiences sort of influenced that yeah well i really enjoy it um and I particularly enjoy um, looking at a um, mature business that has some distress to it or some difficulty and um, needs what the team I've built can bring. Uh, this is in the consumer product space. So we buy uh, brands that are two years to 20 years old, actually the oldest one we've acquired uh, was 70 years uh, mature. Wow! And uh, so in that context, uh, what I've come to really appreciate about a potential seller of a business is brutal transparency, or that's not the way to phrase it, um, just uh, an, an, an ability to be uh, frank about what's not working in the business. Like typically we're coming in because there's an issue um, and we need to know not only about the issue, but the systemic issues that cause that issue. And, and I actually just had an email exchange with a would-be buyer, or would-be seller rather, of a business that's only three years old. It's doing um, half a million in revenue, uh, pretty solid bottom line, uh, but they have challenges uh, or they have threats to the business. And I really appreciated how transparently this um, young entrepreneur, he's like 21, so he's kind of you know, built something very, very early in his, his career, um, how, how well he addressed the questions. And I had to kind of pose the right questions to get that out of him. Um, but he did. He, he told me in effect. If I were to continue, these are three things I'd be most concerned with. These are the four things I would do in ranked order. And that like gave me such a clear vision. And so, uh, from my side of the table that I sit on now, I really appreciate that, that kind of, uh, transparency that some bring. Um, and I notice that when others don't, and it, it definitely, um, either slows down the process or it turns us off as a buyer for sure.
0: Yeah, that's a a really great insight because um, I'm always saying to our clients, you know, nobody has a perfect business. Everybody has issues in their business or things that they could improve. So don't go into a transaction. Buyers, particularly buyers who've done it a few times, don't actually expect you to have a perfect business. Um, So you know, if, and here is the transparency issue, right? I'm always saying to them, you know, people expect you to have issues in your business. The important thing is putting them on the table and demonstrating that you've actually thought about them, that you actually, you know, have, if you haven't already implemented a solution or you're implementing a solution, that you actually have ideas around what that solution might look like. You know, there's been some intelligent thought behind it. I said, that's, that in my book is what buyers are always looking for, which, which, you know, you've very much just confirmed. So, um, um, I, I just can't stress enough too that that point of transparency. Just you know being open and honest about where you think things can go and what, what you think might be the milestones or hurdles. So um, So yeah, that's fascinating. And, and, and all the businesses you're buying, they're all around um, this retail space, I understand.
1: Yeah, they either have primarily wholesale revenue. So they're a traditional brand that uh, works with retailers to go to market, or they are that and they have online revenue, uh, Amazon Marketplace, or they, have, they run a, a website such as on the Shopify platform. And um, we, we favor a certain mix, a certain profile, but we're, we're open to um, you know, various things. I think we're actually ultimately more interested in the strength of the brand and the strength of the product line. We'll figure out the sales channel optimization and the reallocation of revenue from here to there uh, if the brand is strong or if and or if the products are are solid and they lead in their category, even if they're maybe overdue for a refresh. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's that's interesting.
1: Can I ask how many um, acquisitions you've done now? Yeah, we've acquired five in the last uh, year to two, and we intend to um, bring on a number. Um, you know two, two to four in the next calendar year. we're, we're about to go on a buying spree uh, in part because you know, economic times are are suggesting that there's you know, uh, clouds um, on the horizon and so uh, we're, we're definitely seeing sellers um, more interested in selling and also a little more flexible on on sales price. And that actually is something I, I've been ruminating on that I, I think I could offer um, an unfinished uh, perspective onto your your audience here and that is, when you take a, a business to market, um, in this case, a consumer product brand, but it would also apply to a, a SaaS type business, uh, do you name the price explicitly or do you provide the, the hard facts and let it be the buyer's decision what, what they're um, to propose? And frankly, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure what I prefer. Like it, it's clarifying what yeah. a, a seller does, does uh, indicate their price. Um, and it helps, you know, kind of get everything in focus quickly. Um, but then I've encountered now plenty of buyers whose idea of their business's value is way off and it, and it, um, it, it in effect tells me, all right, go ahead and um, back off, let them spend six months failing to sell and then engage. Whereas if they just said, here are facts, what do you propose? I mean, what, what's your offer? Um, I think. Uh, that would probably be more constructive especially where the business has again some substantial amount of uh distress um if you're um building a business that actually has you know problems but not distress that's a different story but if if you have that um squishiness inside the business i think it's better to not say here's our valuation you know we think we're worth this amount." no you know, state all the facts and let the conversation um build from there Another wonderful insight, JL. Thank you. It's it's it is
0: the another one of those pivotal questions that that I certainly have from people wanting to sell. You know, how do we actually present into the market? Um, and you, you've you've absolutely nailed the two the two sort of versions there. I think I think a lot of people even come to us at, at Exit Advisory to say we're thinking of selling. What do you think it's worth? You know, and they all have a number in their head of what they think it's worth. Um, but there's you know, one of our previous uh, guests, um, Greg Alexander, was saying, you know, he said, I always think there's two numbers. There's your number in your head of what you think it's worth or what it's worth to you. And there's the number of what it's worth to the market. And he said, he, he was saying, in my perspective, if the market values your business more than you do, sell it because <laughs> that opportunity may reverse sometime in the future. And, you know, you may never get that opportunity again. Um, but getting clarity on those perspectives, I think, is pretty important to determine whether you go down the path of running a process and investing money in that, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, I, I, I certainly think from my perspective, even as helping, helping a lot of sellers over the years, I do, I do think presenting the facts and, and asking the market, what do you think, um, is, is a good way to go. Of course, everything is negotiable after that, but it's, uh, you know, you can always say, hey, you think it's worth 2 million? Well, look, we think it's worth 3 million and, and here's why. Let us, let's give you some insight on why we think that's the case. And it becomes more of a discussion, then, doesn't it? It's uh, just you know everyone can present their sides, and you know typically, I guess somebody some you land somewhere in the middle. But um, it's it's such a uh, an interesting interesting
1: part of the equation. It is, it is, and, and just to demonstrate how I'm um, playing in every dimension, I'm actually actively preparing to sell a business uh, on our uh, roster right now. It's it's time we think for it to go to a, a next stage owner, and um, so. Our approach is to be to not name the price, uh, but rather to focus on, in on the fundamentals and to ensure that the offer goes to as many prospective buyers as possible, and give everyone a certain amount of time, but then a deadline you know, to react. And, and in that way, we're hopeful that we'll have, ideally, um, kind of a range of offers that will demonstrate to us what the market thinks. You know, I know what we 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 have our idea, but the market, like you said. It, it knows what the value is, you know, collectively. If you get enough offers, you have to have that kind of you know, indexing going on with um, you know, multiple parties. Um, so that's how we're approaching uh, this the scenario because the business is actually strong. It has you know, some areas for development, but it's um, not fundamentally um, distressed in any way
0: yeah yeah that's um and, and and some more great insights you know about running a proper process and having enough people at the at least in the mix is uh, i think a great a great tip um i'm i'm curious about your your strategy here um you know once again i mean, you know don't want to ask for the 11 herbs and spices here but it's um in my head when you're talking about acquisitions i was wondering are you acquiring various brands to build a, a larger sort of conglomerate um, or, or do you see the acquisitions you make as just independent brands that may be spun out again later? And, you know, do, do you have a broader appeal or is it just a sort of case by case basis?
1: Yeah, we, we think of ourselves as um, a stage two um, business owner. And by implication, there's a stage three that we come in uh, when business is in need of new ownership and a, and a redirection and um, where the, the owners don't have the, the answers, they don't have the playbook. We do. Uh, we bring it, we play it for uh, two, three, four years. This is our vision. We're not yet mature enough to have had uh, exits and then we, we hand it off. And so this, this is the brand I referred to as the first acquisition and we think it's time. Um, and it's, it's time in this respect. We've decided not to do internationalization. We don't do international expansion. Uh, we'd like to, It's you know, it's an interesting kind of business to run. I, I actually was based in France and the UK for for Google for a, a while. So I know what it's like to run or to operate internationally. It's anyway, but that's not in our charter. And therefore, if this business is to properly grow, uh, it has to get into the hands of a party that can operate uh, globally. And so that's how we've decided it's time. So we're kind of in the house flipping flipping business, you could say. You know, we, we, we take on a business when it needs to be re- renovated and then we, we hand it off to a buyer that really will, you know, appreciate it um, and care for it as a stage three owner. Yeah, yeah, interesting. It, it's,
0: it's. Um, I think for those listening and wondering who might be the right buyer for their business, I think you've sort of touched on here what is, what we would use the Ansoff matrix for, you know, is, you know, you're thinking about a buyer, um, you know, and if you haven't no know- listening and you're not not sure what the Ansoff matrix is, shoot us a message. We can share information. Google it. There's so much out there. But, you know, typically there's businesses out there doing the same products and services in the same market. That's just a no-brainer for them. You're basically a competitor, you know, or are they doing similar products and services in a different market or are they in the same market as you but with different products and services? You know, where's the mix Or where's the reason why they might want to buy you? And, you know, we've, we've got a couple of deals on at the moment where, um you know there's associated industry or, or companies like you know if if one might be in or oh, I don't want to give it away I'll just say I'll use a different industry completely allied health you know you you're in you run medical centers but you don't do physiotherapy and all that sort of stuff you know if you're in the same market maybe you want to branch into those new services but if you're in another country and you're not in those services as well it's just too much of a leap right new markets and new services you know so so i think i think some of the people I've met out there get a little bit excited around how much their business might be an opportunity for an international buyer, and it's like, yeah, you, you, yes, in some ways, but but in a lot of cases, there's, it's just a stretch too far. Um, and so, I think having a bit of thought go into that kind of strategy before you start thinking of selling is going to be important to come up with the right sort of list of buyers. So, um, so yeah, that's 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 great. Um, you know, Joel, I've, I've, this has been a great discussion. I mean, I, you know, you've shared so many insights and so many really critical tips here for business owners. Um, I'm and a little bit cognizant of time, but um, are you happy for people to reach out to you? Um, you mentioned that other business you're selling wasn't doing international, but do you look at buying other businesses that are run by, like, for example, if there was people in Australia who are running an Amazon online business and wanted to sell, like, is that of interest to you because it's on an online platform or what? what's the kind of approach there for you?
1: Uh, let's see. We, we've we looked at buying a business based in the UK, but that has uh, substantial US operations. And um, we pulled away because the party had a Outrageously uh, wrong idea of their business's value, not because of the kind of international uh, dimension of it. Um, and so the answer is, I think we would uh, certainly entertain, um, but it would be on it would be a case where the business has a, a U.S. presence or you know it has has existing distribution and it's working, and um, where we could be the ones to take take charge of that. Um, and we're actually contemplating uh, kind of joint venture scenarios too. We're looking at an acquisition for which um, kind of just kind of randomly the product is popular in the U.S. and it has high potential in northern Europe of all places. It has to do with like uh, genetics. And we don't want to, as you heard, do internationalization. But if we could find a JV partner in northern Europe, we'd love that. Like, that'd be so cool to do so. So I, I would definitely welcome inquiries from parties outside the U.S. if there's a connection with this market where we have you know, strength and know how and a team of 20 people across the U.S. we can execute. Uh, but we're, yeah, and I, I'll just underscore, you know, we're maybe we'll change our minds next year and we'll start going global. But what I'm trying to illustrate there is one principle of business, which is, you know, know, know the scope, know your charter and stay within it. And if you change it, you know, be thoughtful about it. Like you're actually like writing it down, like we are now doing X, but we're not doing that. Um, I, I just think it's really important to do that. And I say that as an entrepreneur, that's launched a dozen businesses that uh, different times had charter creep, you know, didn't didn't hang on to the original vision too tightly enough.
0: Yeah, that's um, some some more great advice there, though. So thank you. Um, I, so I've got obviously you're linked, you on LinkedIn. I mean, are you happy for people to reach out to you on that platform, or is there a better way that people can contact you? Yeah, LinkedIn's great. Awesome. Okay. Well, as we always say on the show, if you do reach out to uh, to jail, please. Put a little note in there when you when you're sort of reaching out to let him know maybe that you've heard him on this podcast so he has a little bit of context as to why you're reaching out um but look Joel, um thank you you know you, you've been not just a nugget of gold you've you've given you know numerous numerous uh gold tips and insights here it's been fabulous having you on the show and yeah really appreciate you taking the time
1: my pleasure simon
0: wish you well Awesome. So thank you, everyone, for tuning in for another episode. Uh, We will put some show notes in there with uh, Jayle's LinkedIn profile. And, of course, um, you know, there's some other connections there to other businesses he's uh, running at the moment. So um, by all means, check him out. And uh, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us as well. well. We'll do what we can to help you. And hopefully we'll see you and hear from you for the next episode. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder Questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.